few years ago, not long after we moved to Somerset, my beloved wife bought a horse. And when I say bought, what I really mean was acquired for the token sum of a fiver, because this horse was serving out the twilight of his career at a local riding school, and was beginning to find even that a bit of a burden. He was called Jester, although it turned out that in his prime, when he took part in three-day events at the likes of badminton, he went under the stable name of, and I think we need a drum roll at this point, Airbus the Rock Phenomenon. Welcome to episode 11 of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we secrete the kipper of comedy down the back of the radiator of literature. My name is Jonathan Pinnock, and I'm the author of the mathematical mystery series of comic thrillers published by Farago Books. My guest today is Renaissance man Chris Fielden, who is not only a writer and the man behind the world's most idiosyncratic literary contest, the Two Hull and Back Humorous Short Story Competition, but is also the drummer in, you've guessed it, the band Airbus. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Not too bad. It's probably not often you get introduced with a horse-related story. It's not, no, that's the first, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's a weird connection there, anyway. Uh, we'll talk more later about uh, Chris himself and to Holland Back, and indeed Airbus. But uh, we'll begin by looking at the book that he's chosen to discuss, which is Terry Pratchett's Mort, the fourth book in the Discworld series. So you had 41 Discworld books to choose from. Why this one in particular? Because it was my favourite. From I mean, I'm, I read all these books about 25 years ago, so it's a, a long time ago that um, that I read them the first time round. But this one's the one that stuck in my mind because I think it was the first complete book that Terry Pratchett wrote. I mean, he's quoted himself actually as saying that he felt it was it was the first Discord novel he was pleased with because it actually had a story and didn't just support the jokes that he had uh, in the previous books. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would have probably chosen it as well because for the same reasons. Because, yeah. I mean, you, you got, got the first two books, which are fantastic fun, and you got loads of amazing characters. you got the luggage and that sort of thing, yeah. and, and that sort of stuff. And then there's Equal Rights, which is it's an attempt to branch out it doesn't quite work because i don't think there are not enough funny characters to interact or maybe, yeah maybe, maybe. Like, i don't know and then then mort it really takes off doesn't it yeah and you know i love the character of death as well i mean a lot of the stuff i write is around the theme of death and i, I maybe that comes a little bit from terry pratchett but i love the way that he explores death through life <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in this particular book, it, Death is trying to learn more about life while his apprentice is learning more about death and that. I don't know. It, it's just, there's something very appealing about the way he writes. It's a nice way of describing it, yeah. I mean, the, the, do you want to sort of talk about the plot? Do you want to just give a quick sketch of it? Yeah, so, so basically the main character is called Mort, and that is the French word for um, death. So it's a play on words, and Mortimer is trying to get an apprenticeship, and Death chooses him to be his apprentice so that he can, I don't know, teach someone else's trade and and have a day off. 
is the basic gist of it. And as, mm. as it goes along, Death discovers that he really enjoys life and more, learns an awful lot more about death and tries to save someone who is supposed to die and causes all sorts of havoc when he doesn't actually claim her soul and allows her to carry on living when her time has run out. So, and then it all comes together very nicely at the end. I don't want to spoil mm. in case people... No. But. So I, th I think I think that the first twenty odd pages of it are probably one of the best openings to a comic novel ever written. Actually, because it, I, I mean, I, when I reread it, I thought, my God, I, I feel like I'm back home again. Almost, it, it's it's one of those things you just slot into it, and it just works perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah, he's got a very compelling tone of voice, which you just can't help but read on. Yeah. And the, the, the lovely little turns of phrase and the way he describes things. I mean, I've highlighted a couple of quotes. If you want to yeah, go for it. Uh, so when he's describing Ankh-Morpork, which is the, the main city on the disc, he says, so let's just say that Ankh-Morpork is as full of life as an old cheese on a hot day, as loud as a curse in a cathedral, as bright as an oil slick, as colourful as a bruise, and as full of activity industry bustle and sheer exuberant busyness as a dead dog on a termite mound. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, they're long sentences, but it, it just works so well. He's got a real yeah. way with words. Um, and and it's, it, it does have a rhythm to it, doesn't it? The, the way it's sort ah, of... Yeah. 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 And yeah. here's another very quick one. This is him describing a prostitute. There seemed to be rather a lot of friendly young ladies who couldn't afford many clothes. You know, it's just a little <laughs> way of yeah. puts these things across. It's just, you know, very, very well done. Yeah. I, I love his, his description of Mort himself, actually. It, it was also acutely embarrassing to Mort's family that the youngest son was not at all serious and had about the same talent for horticulture that you would find in a dead starfish. It wasn't that he was unhelpful, but he had the kind of vague, cheerful helpfulness that serious men soon learn to dread. There was something infectious, possibly even fatal about it. He was tall, red-haired and freckled, with the sort of body that seems to be only marginally under its owner's control. It appeared to be built out of knees. <laughs> yeah, it's always that last little line that yeah. in the end that just... I've got another example just like that one, isn't yeah. it? Like me doing it. This is another description of what Ant Morpork smells like. Uh, Mort sniffed. There was a certain something about the air in the city. You got the feeling that it was air that had seen life. You couldn't help noting with every breath that thousands of other people were very close to you, and nearly all of them had armpits. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just so well done. <laughs> so well done. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing he does is he, he writes from an omniscient point of view as an, an invisible omniscient narrator. And that, I think, is actually very difficult to pull off, but he, he does it so well. Mm. Yeah, and I, th I think it's the way that he he, he does dig into all the, all the small characters, doesn't he? And, 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 and... Yeah, and because he head hops. Mm. It's one of those things that's kind of frowned upon, isn't it? Because he kind of yeah. <laughs> gives each person and tells you what they're thinking. and I don't know, because it's so crazy, you just forgive it. You forgive it the little things that you might say, that's a mistake, even though it's mm. not really a mistake. It's just the way he writes, you know? He does it really well. I guess it shows that you can break all these 
literary rules. If oh, you yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he's got this d d absolute delight in, in seediness and, and the everyday sort of thing of people of, of wherever they come from just muddling along somehow. And, yeah. And that sort of feeling of... of I mean, the Ang Ang Morpork is is a as a character and so right in the in the books, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he does it very very well. I've got another little example. There's one. There's one exchange because Isabel, who's the one he ends up marrying. Spoiler, sorry. Um, <laughs> there's a really nice little bit where they're kind of trying to describe each other to each other. I wouldn't marry you if you were the last man on the disc. She said sweetly. Mort was hurt by this. It was one thing not to marry someone, but quite another to be told they didn't want to marry you. At least I don't look like I've been eating donuts in a wardrobe for years, he said, as they stepped out onto Death's black lawn. At least I walk as if my legs only had one knee each, she said. My eyes aren't two juggly poached eggs, Isabel nodded. On the other hand, my ears. Don't look like something growing on a dead tree. And what does juggling mean? You know, eggs like Albert does them. What? With the white all sticky and runny and full of slimy bits? Yes. A good word, he conceded thoughtfully. But my hair, I put it to you, doesn't look like something you can clean a privy with. Certainly, but neither does mine that look like a wet hedgehog. Pray note that my chest does not appear to be a toast rack in a wet paper bag. Mort glanced sideways at the top of Isabel's dress, which contained enough puffy fat for two litres of Rottweiler and four boards of common. My eyebrows don't look like a pair of mating caterpillars, he hazarded. True, but my legs, I suggest, could at least stop a pig in a passageway. Sorry? They're not bandy, she explained. Ah. It's just not, you know, <laughs> chatting and talking and waffling on, but you can't help but read it. It's really yeah. well written. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's one of my favourite characters that he wrote about. I think it's because he's not human, but the way he's written is very human. It's almost like he's learning to be human as, uh, as the novel progresses. Yeah, I mean, Death, Death is the character that, that turns up in not quite every novel in the series, but almost. Almost, yeah, even if it's briefly, um, usually. Yeah, and it's just, he's there, inevitable, just doing his job. Yeah, and, I, suppose, uh, I suppose actually Terry uses him like, you know, even, it's inevitable that he will be in every book, as it is inevitable that we will all meet him one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But he's, he's also weird, I mean, death is, always, is, is weird, Weirdly fascinated by the by the people that he ends up ushering into the next life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that well, that's that's the main one of the main plot drivers of, of, of the, the book, isn't it? That, that, yeah, and it's, it's totally believable because if you had to yeah. deal with all these souls, you, you'd become interested in them. Wouldn't you? It's like I don't know, it, it just feels very natural, even though it's yeah. a complete fantasy. Because there's this lovely bit where um, I think uh, when he takes Mort on the first. On his first sort of duty, it's the death of the of King Olerv the Bastard. <laughs> yeah, who's who is actually the see the father of um, oh. Kelly, isn't it? Kelly. Yeah. 
yeah, that's right. Yeah, who um, who is who causes all all all, all the trouble. So uh, they they arrive a bit early to uh, deal with the king getting assassinated, and so there's a party going on. And uh, Death says to Mort, "Oh, we've got a few minutes. Let's mingle." And there's uh, Death becomes fascinated with the canapes. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to understand why people like them. Yeah, I mean, mushrooms, mushrooms, yes. Chicken, yes. Cream, yes, I've got nothing against any of them. But why in the name of sanity mince them all up and put them in little pastry cases? <laughs> That's mortal's view, death continued. They've only got a few years in this world, and they spend them all ma- making things complicated for themselves. Fascinating. Have a gherkin. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, his observation... I think I think one of the reasons why these books have got such wide appeal is they're they're fantasy books set in a fantasy setting, but they mirror our world so closely. Yeah, yeah, relate. that's right. And and, and the, the the genius of 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 Discworld is that perhaps you can move from one place to the next, or from one bunch of characters to the next, and and sort of look at different aspects of of human behaviour, can't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he does it in all the books, but he also does it just on the, you know, the subject matters of some of them. There's, there's like, there's one about football, and there's another one mm. about music and how music influences people. And, mm. um, yeah. So much. I, I really enjoyed that one as well. Soul music, obviously. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but his observations are so, so close to the bone that that's why it works. Mm. And it, uh, the, the thing that fascinates me actually is that his really, his big break almost was when he, I think it was The Colour of Magic got serialised on Women's Hour and he suddenly found a female readership that, you know, fantasy books, maybe not so much in those days. Yeah, maybe not, yeah. um, Fantasy and and science fiction. Yeah, science fiction indeed. It it was used to be a very male... um, male thing and and i think in some ways that he, he broadened it broadened the appeal of that yeah which is really nice yeah yeah but it still yeah. took him a long time look took a long time to be uh accepted by the establishment didn't it because well, yeah he, was, he you know he, he he became a national treasure eventually but he, he he wasn't really he was pretty much looked down on for a lot of it a lot of his life the only yeah. the only one who the only one who really championed him was 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 A.S. Byatt, wasn't it? Because uh, she, she she was her her quote was always on the back of his books. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's something to do with the genre he wrote in, because yeah, oh, de- definitely, definitely. Often, I, I don't know if you look down upon the right way of saying it. Mm. People who don't like it tend to love the voice to, to voice the fact that they don't like it. Mm. That yeah. kind of makes it seem, in some literary circles, like it's an inferior form of writing to more literary prose, I suppose. Mm. Maybe it's something, I'm not saying everyone's like that, but there's, there's some people are. I wonder if that's why. I th- yeah, I, I think it may be less so now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. that's one of the things about the internet nowadays. It's kind of opened up all these different genres to why yeah. you read. Yeah, that's right more diverse audiences, so there's mm. there's less of it, I suppose. Yeah. And of course, the fact that he was so popular, maybe that in itself was something that made <laughs> him a bit more acceptable, you know? 
Yeah, I think maybe him and Douglas Adams between them uh, did yeah. a lot to to open things up. Yeah, they did. Yeah, fair play yeah. to them. They did. They've done a lot more than anyone else. It's got to be fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, did you start at the Colour of Magic and read all the way through, or did you? I did. Yeah, I started at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. I, it was one of going back to the band. We all used to buy each other's um, birthday presents. Mm. I think it was the bassist had read the first book, and so he bought it for me for my birthday. And some, as soon as I read that, that was it. I just read all of them. Yeah. So how, how many had come out at the time? Had you got a lot of catching up to do? <laughs> uh, not that many. I can't honestly remember. I guess I would have been late teens, early 20s. I'm trying to think when the first book was actually published, you know. Yeah, this was 87, the first time this was published, more. Oh, 83 was Colour Magic. Oh, right. In that case, yes. Okay, so, about, yeah. You know, I, I suspect, I can't remember exactly, but I suspect it would have been late 80s that I got into it. So Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's, that's the same as same as me, actually. I, I think Guards, Guards had just come out when I started, uh, started reading this. Now, I saw that. Do you remember Paul Darrow? He played Avon in Blake 7. Oh, yeah. He was Captain Grimes. Is Grimes, isn't it? Samuel Grimes. Yeah, Grimes. He played him in the stage play in Hackney. We went down and saw him at the Hackney Empire doing the stage play of it. It was brilliant. Really good. I'm trying to imagine him as as, as Vines. He did it very well, actually. <laughs> All I could see was like, is anyone have Blake Seven? <laughs> but he did yeah. such a really good job with it because he's quite dry, and I think yeah, yeah, that's right. Character is quite dry. Actually, yeah, Actually, think about it. He could he, he could do it well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a shame he's not with us anymore because I always enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I mean, he's, he's a love Blake Seven. But is that, what I'm surprised about is they haven't done more TV with Teddy Pratchett stories because there's so many there, and there's only been a few that have been adapted. Hmm. I thought yeah, they had a series of films. Yeah, I I don't know because there's. There's this one. There's there was the BBC America thing of the watch, wasn't there? Which was where they changed quite a lot of stuff, and there was uproar in the fandom. Yeah, I mean, if you make, <laughs> I, it I haven't watched it, so I, I don't know what it's like. Yeah. So, I saw the Hogfather. Was that BBC or ITV? I can't remember who did it. Actually, it was Sky, wasn't it? Didn't Sky do it? It might have been. Yeah, maybe it was Sky. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. Maybe it doesn't translate onto TV very well. Or, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I would have thought, you know, Mort in particular. That's a, it's a really good story. I guess, that. Yeah, it, it, you'd think it would work really well. I, I, I'm sure there was a radio version of it. In fact, I think I've got it recorded somewhere. Have I got one? Yeah, I mean, they're all audio books, aren't they? So you can mm. just... I think it was, there was a radio play done of it. Yeah. I think. I think, personally, I just prefer reading them because then I can kind of make the voices how I want them in my head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I, are you a fan of all the books? Or there's some that you... Yeah, the, only one I, the I only one I remember limping through a little bit was the one about Australia. Or, you know, mm. not about Australia, but it was kind of themed around that. Yeah. I think some of the... The thing, the thing that is so good about Mort is, is how tight it is and it's 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 this it's it's edited down to the you know as the absolute bare minimum of what it needs to be 
Yeah. I, I just had to think that some of the some of the later books, maybe they went a little bit longer than they needed to. I don't know. They are, yeah, maybe. Are, maybe that longer. Just, maybe that was just the way he wrote it at the time, and yeah. maybe the way the editing changed. I suppose when people become really well known and famous, maybe. Uh, maybe the editor gets a bit scared. Them, <laughs> pop their words out. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes think that was Stephen King's very, very long book. <laughs> they could be cut back a little bit. I mean, I love Stephen King, but mm. some of them are epic, aren't they? And we, I'm sure some of them have cut back a bit. But, yeah. You know, it all comes, it's all very subjective, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wish there were more female writers, really. Yeah. I mean, get, get, going back to more, there's some, some lovely bits where he just has, has fun and breaks the fourth wall as well. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's a side somewhere where he actually talks to you like it was on film. Yeah, I'm was, I, I was just going to read that bit out. Okay. There's this bit where at the end of one scene, Princess says something, and there's a gap, and then Death says there is, and then in brackets, Pratchett says, that was a cinematic trick adapted for print. Death wasn't talking to the princess. He was actually in his study talking to Mort. But it was quite effective, wasn't it? It's probably called a fast dissolve or a cross-cut zoom or something. An industry where a senior technician is called a best boy might call it anything. <laughs> it's sort of, it's a bit self-indulgent, but it... It, it is, but it, it does. It, but it, you can tell it's, it's someone who's having a lot of fun with the writing. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, that counts for a lot. And this is what I mean about the omniscient narration. You know that the omniscient narrator is Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Not like they're a character in their own right. They're him. Yes, and and you sort of trust him that that he'll take you he'll take you in in, in the in places where where it, it it's going to be okay to go, don't you? You sort of yeah yeah, and he he it flows, you know. It, yeah. it bother me when he he does that and kind of talks to the reader. It, it's really well mm. done. And you know, it's like all those little bits where he puts stars and explains it a bit further at the bottom. Yes, That's like him talking to you and sort of adding yeah. notes of interest. I've got one last lovely little bit that I highlighted that I've been mm. pretty short. Uh, again, it's just a little bit between um, Mort and Isabel. Mort feels like he should pay her a compliment. So Mort felt something was owed. I must say, he said, you're a real brick. You mean pink, square and dumpy? You really know how to talk to girl, my boy. Just little things like that. Yes. Thoroughly yeah, recommend that anyway. If any of you have never listened, uh, read it. It's brilliant. Uh, the, the, the whole of the Discord series is great. I even enjoyed his like the ones he's playing more at kids. Oh, the uh, the truck truckers. And, yeah. Um, diggers. Yeah, they, they they were fun. I enjoyed those, with, especially with our, our, our kids were growing up and just starting out on on the, on that sort of stuff. He's got a kind of childish. Childish is the wrong word. The way he writes would appeal to children. So if they yeah. find it and they're young enough, they're going to go on and read all of his books. So it's quite a good thing to do. Okay, well, maybe we could uh, move on to talk about you. I think I'd like, I'd like to start off with talking about Dahal and Back. 
Yeah. So t- tell me all about it. What 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 is Tahalan back? I mean, I I, I know what it is because I've entered it in the past, but uh, <laughs> tell the. Uh, it's, well, it started off as a very poor play on a cliche to Helen back to Helen back. So, years ago, when I first started my website, I originally planned to use it just to showcase bits of my writing and stuff. And it very quickly became apparent that no one knew who I was and no one was going to find my stories. And I've got a, a background in digital marketing, so I thought, well, why don't I share some stuff on the website that other writers? may find useful. And I have this big list of um, short story competitions and I'm in a spreadsheet and I thought, well, why don't I just basically convert that into a web page and make it a resource so that people can, you know, find all these different competitions that I've researched. Yeah. So I started that off and then my website started getting a lot of traffic. And over time, it was like, I've got all these people coming through my website that like short stories. So it's just a logical progression to to start a competition myself. Hmm. Um, and I wanted to do something a bit different to all the other competitions out there. And I didn't have a great deal of money to put behind it. So I thought, well, you know, so I'm never going to compete with Rip or Pride or anything like that. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll put like 200 quid aside so I've got a prize pot and I'll come up with a you know, an interesting take on a competition that no one else does. So don't ask me why, but I decided that it would be a good idea if the winner's head was placed on the cover of the book and they were depicted riding a flaming motorcycle and holding a quill of ra, and that I would then strap the book onto the handlebars of my motorbike and film it being ridden up to hull and back again. And if the winner wanted to, they could come on the back of the bike with me. And I thought, yeah, that, that, that's crazy. And that there weren't really any competitions for humour out there at the time either. And no. people were moaning a lot about the fact that no one published it. So I thought, well, why don't I make it humorous? An open competition, but the stories have to be humorous in some way, shape or form. Mm. And that kind of, you know, matched up with the crazy prize. And so I launched it and I thought, no one's going to enter this. It's too mental. And it, it had been open for about three months and I've had quite a few entries. And at that point, it dawned on me that I'm actually going to have to see this through and do the book <laughs> to my bike and ride it to Hallenbach. And it, it's kind of evolved from there. So Mike, who won it the first year, when, when I emailed him and said, look, we've got to do this trip to Hull now, so do you want to come on the back of the bike? And he was like, I've never been on a motorcycle before, and I think that would be a baptism of fire. So no, thank you for the offer, but I will meet you up in Hull so we can make a video together. And yeah, it's just kind of involved there. I was, I was going to ask you how, how many winners have actually joined you on the trip? Most of them have met me in Hull. Only one hmm. person, Crystal Jeans, who's a, a Welsh writer, she was brave enough to come on the back of the bike with me. Right. <laughs> Only one person's actually done the trip on the bike. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, it's in its seventh time of running it at the moment. So, right. And when every time I run it, it's you know it's a real joy to run. But it's got to this. It's got to the stage now because every year I put the prize pot up mm. and increase the entry fee a bit to kind of mitigate some of the risk. Because nowadays the prize pot is over three thousand pounds, and that would be particularly wealthy person, so I can't afford to lose three grand. So I've got the prize pot up to kind of make sure that I at least cover most of it. 
And it, it's the last time I ran, I got 582 entries, and it's getting to that kind of wow. stage where it's a little bit, it's getting too big for one person to manage. Super, yeah. The last time that I actually do all the reading myself, and I depend, it depends how many entries I get. You never know until the 31st mm. of July when it closes, because the last month is when around about 50% of the entries come in. Yeah. So I don't know if it's going to grow again this time around or not yet. It's on track. Mm. That doesn't mean it will. You literally yeah. the final day. I'm not, I was going to ask you how, you how you go about judging uh, entries, because I mean, I've, I've done. I've done a little bit of it, and it's not always easy to. to I mean, some, some 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 stuff you can you can discard almost from the first sentence. You can, I've... but it's not not fair to do that in some ways. No. But you know, you know, it's not going to get much better. No, what I usually do now that I've got this many to read is I I read the first page regardless, mm. and if it's not particularly well written or it's got something fundamental wrong with it and I skim it but I always make sure I get through it and understand the ending before I completely discard mm. anything and that's largely just I think that's the fair way to do it I've done talks with other people where they get so so many entries they just can't do that for example I did a talk at a literary festival a couple of years ago with Nick Royal who's a he runs the Manchester fiction competition oh yeah yeah they mm. so many entries but they have to dismiss them a bit more ruthlessly mm. and they will dismiss them within the first couple of paragraphs if they're badly written mm. and you, you can understand why when they're dealing with 1500 entries you know, it's, yeah. it's an awful lot of reading so there are different ways of going about it but I, I try and give everyone you know I try and be fair to every single entrant the yeah. bit where it gets very difficult is this bit when it shuts at the end of July and then I basically have to, I go away for two weeks and usually sit up in the Cambria Mountains where the internet reception is dire so I can't get interrupted and just read because <laughs> it's the only way you can get through them. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. There's some great stories in there. Yeah. Talking about judging things, I, I, I still, I'm still mortified by that. I, I once had to judge a competition where I succeeded. I, I was just given the... Was it the long list or the short list? Maybe the top twenty or thirty or, or so. And I managed to pass over a story by Alison Moore in the exact same year that she got shortlisted for the Booker Prize. <laughs> and, yeah, I, know, I know, but it's so subjective. It is. It's honestly, and, and I, I still think it's probably the right decision because the, the winning story was—I I can't remember who it was by—but it was exceptionally good. Yeah, and you know, you've it's, got to choose what's right for the competition as well, you know. Yeah. I, I get literally hundreds of very good stories every year, and there's only 20 spots on the shortlist, mm. so I just pick the ones that are best suited to the competition and, and me, really, and a lot yeah. of it does personal taste. Mm. But every year I have to dismiss stuff that's really good. And you yeah. know it can go on and be published elsewhere because it's too well written not to be. But when mm. you've got too many stories like that, you just have to start, you have to just make brutal decisions. And what yeah. I do, I, I kind of give myself criteria so that when you've got two very different stories that are both brilliant, you can kind of look at them objectively and decide which one is best suited to the competition. So that's what I do when it's very difficult to decide at the end, which is always, mm. always difficult. Okay. So, so do you... 
I mean, do you get people who keep coming back and keep getting shortlisted, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that's one of the dangers with having the same judge every year. <laughs> well, it is because it's yeah, I suppose yeah, you... to your particular taste. Then even if you don't, you know, even when you're reading a story that's unmarked, sometimes I can recognise them and go, "I think I know who wrote that." Yeah. You can just tell by the tone of voice, like John Holland, who won it in 2018. Mm. He's got a very distinctive tone of voice when he writes. Yeah. I can quite often spot his entries. <laughs> but I think John wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like he does, but then that's one of the reasons why he's such a good writer. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, you do you do get some repeats, but every year there are, there are new people that enter, but, you know. I haven't seen before and they write really really well so mm. you can never tell I, I surprise myself sometimes with the stuff I get mm. and, you know get selected at the end so and if I, anyone listen if anyone listening wants to enter it when's the closing date and closing date is the 31st of July and the first prize is how much uh, 1200 this time right okay. first prize is there are 20 cash prizes yep First prize is 1,200, second prize is 600, third prize is 300, three highly commended for 150, and 14 shortlisted prizes of 50 pounds. And if it grows again this year, then I'll, I'll put the prize part up again next time around. I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to implement that yet. We'll have to wait and see. I'll have to wait and see how many entries I get. But I like it. I like to. I think one of the reasons why it grows every time I run it is because I up the prize pot every time, and I, I think it's nice to give more prizes rather than just one big top prize and not much else. Yeah, that's about that, that is a nice idea, and certainly uh, you mentioned the Manchester prize because that one I think is not just one big one big first prize and not much else. to the winner. I think they have yeah. got some. Second and third might get something as well. Mm. But a lot of them do that. With the BBC, they've got theirs of 15,000. But I think yeah. there are another five that get a thousand in that one. Mm. Yeah, that's no, it. Everyone does it slightly differently. But I, I put the 20 shortlisted stories in the anthology, and therefore I think it's nice to give each writer something for mm. that. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's good. And it, it, it is good to have a, a competition devoted to humorous stories because they yeah try, try putting something funny in for the Bridport and I think you might struggle to get yeah you, you might do very, few, very few funny ones seem to get through there so it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult one hmm. a lot of competitions ask for humor and then don't publish it but then <laughs> But then you don't know the quality of the humorous stories that they've got and whether they fit with what they're looking for. So mm. it's a difficult one. But yeah, so far as I know, Callum Back, the only one that's at, you know regularly run that's, that celebrates humour, you, you get one-off ones that do it. But I don't know of any others that are just dedicated to it. Yeah. So I've just, I just realised I interrupted you when you were describing how to enter. Oh, so, right. Yeah. So um, yes, you need to. It's all on my website, basically. If you go to the competition page on the website, it tells you how to enter. The entry fee for a single story is fifteen pounds this year, and you get discounts if you enter two or three stories. 
and then you get the I mean, story and introduce some guidelines uh, on the competition page. Great stuff. And we've already got the front cover designed, which is has been done by the guitarist out of Airbus, actually, this year. Oh, cool. <laughs> Kept it in the family. <laughs> <laughs> right. That sounds like a good cue to start to go on to talk about Airbus, then. Uh, yeah, well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not? I should say before I start, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely a fan of Airbus because uh, having come across this horse, I started looking into Airbus and uh, I, I bought uh, Ghosts and I, I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, yeah. I got, uh, got uh, the Gravity EP as well. Right. Somewhat, some years after they came out. But uh, oh, and, uh, the, 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 the one that I've, the, the one that I've only, only just... Um, just got is the um the porter's head one the um, uh, what the b-side thing we did b-side of power times yeah that is quite something because well that was the dark because we went to, <laughs> we went to school with jeff which is how we know him how we, yeah. you know he's our contact in port head um and he had signed up to go beat and they'd recorded dummy but it hadn't been released so no, no one knew it was going to be popular at that point. Mm. He was like, I need a B-side, so can you guys do do me a B-side? And we were like, yeah, okay. And he sent us a tape with a click track on it and Beth spoke yeah. And that's all he gave us. And uh, there might have been a little bit of a bass line on there just so that we could get the right key. And he was like, you know, just yeah. have a, I don't want to play you the proper song. I want you to uh, do what you want with it so that you're not influenced mm. by the way the song sounds. And so we faffed about with it and then went into his studio, which was in Easton in Bristol at the time, and spent a, we were just in there for a day and just recorded it and did this kind of rock-tastic <laughs> heavy metal version of it. And then Beth came in and did a bit of extra vocal at the end, but it was on the original yeah. Sour Times. And we were like, well, all right, Jeff, now we've done that, you're going to play us the original. And he played us the original, which is really sweet and beautiful. And we were like, oh, God, sorry, mate. We've, we've killed that, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, was, he, was, he was really pleased with it, though. He's like, yeah, oh, I, th- I, think, I think it works really well. It's, it's, it's the hitherto unsuspected missing link between trip-hop and grunge, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we, just, we did it by accident. It was literally, yeah. I think we didn't hear the original song beforehand. Yeah. And yeah, they used that on the on the B side of uh, the EP in the UK. And I think they used it in it might have been in America and Israel and places where there's a lot more focus on rock, so that there was that kind of aspect to the music when they put it out. It's it, yeah. it's 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 worth um if, if there are any Portis head fans out there who haven't heard it before, it's it's worth uh, worth googling it. Airbus reconstruction. It's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's on YouTube. It's, it's great fun. So anyway, that was just a side issue. <laughs> so t- tell me about what uh, what you're doing doing at the moment. Um, with Airbus, we yeah. so in 2017 we did a another album called Primitive Carnival, mm. and did a 
uh, a release on Spyro Records of that, and we were just about to release another album for you, which has actually got quite a lot of old songs on it that we recorded back in the 90s. Yeah, I recognised a couple from uh, Gravity on there. Yes, that's right. Uh, Save yeah. Yourself and I think they're both on it, aren't they? And they've been remixed and, you know, polished and finished yeah. off for the release on this. And yeah, so what happened was back in the day, we had, we, we were very prolific when we wrote songs. So we, we, we probably got about 200, but loads of them. And we couldn't keep up with the amount of songs we had releasing them. Mm. Mm. And so when we got these finished off, we thought it'd be nice to release them. And then the plan is to use that as a kind of prequel to a, a brand new spanking album that we just finished recording now. So this was one album that comes out in September and then there's another one which I think is going to be called Imperial Gunpowder that we'll put out next year. So there's an awful lot going on in the music world at the moment, but obviously not very much. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the pandemic has put a right damper on that. Yeah. <clears throat> it must have, yeah. I mean, did, did you have plans to do to do more gigging? or? Uh... Yeah, because I play in another band called Little Villains. Hmm. With James, who's in Airbus, and we had a we had a tour book that we had to cancel. Mm. And Brexit hasn't helped either, because obviously we used to go and tour over in Europe, and yeah, is completely knackered now. We could, you know, we don't know whether you need a visa. The politicians are all blaming each other, so the British are blaming the Europeans, the Europeans are blaming us. And they, long story short, we don't know whether we need working visas to go and gig over there or not, mm. which is a bit of a nightmare when you're kind of doing the the cheaper end of touring because it costs up a lot. Well, yeah, because it, I would imagine, you know, if, if you're if you're at the top end, you can you can afford to to pay for it all. But if yeah. you're, yeah, yeah, when you're kind of doing the, the pubs kind of end of it, it takes a big chunk out. And at the moment, we don't even know what we would have to do if we wanted to go and do it. So it's really scuffling up. So I think the plan is if if these lockdown restrictions go as we currently think they're likely to, then we'll probably try doing some gigs over here later this year mm. and then hopefully get over to Europe and maybe over to America next year. Because two of the band members live over in America. Then, so. I was going to ask you about it because, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I, I did read that. So do you sort of, if you're recording new material, do you do it here or in the States or...? Usually we do it over in America because mm. James has got a recording studio in his garage. All right. Um, and it takes, it's actually cheaper for, for the guys that live this side. So myself and Simon, when it's Airbus, and myself and Evan, when it's Little Villains, it's more cost effective for us to fly out there, spend a couple of weeks recording over there where there's no studio cost. Mm-hmm. Where if you come over here and do it, you've got a high studio. Yeah rate on the studio is very cheap so it's cheaper to fly out there and do it so we usually bought it within america so what what was the what was the trigger to to get back together after that sort of hiatus then well we've all got a love of music which has never gone away we've never stopped working we've just done other stuff and it's kind of the airbus thing became a part-time concern rather than a full-time concern Mm. and I don't know, it's, it's some of this older music, it's like drawing a line under it, so right there it is, it's out there. Um, you know, we still enjoy doing it. It's, it's the same as writing, you know, why do people write? 
primarily and it's nice if you make a bit of money out of it on the side that's the way i've always approached it yeah because we love it and i love the music and i love the writing and what's nice about those two mediums is the writing you do on your own and the music you do as part of a unit mm. and you get the best of both worlds there so you get to do be creative in collaboration with music and be creative and retain the control you want to with the writing and that, that's what I like about it is that mix of different ways of creating things mm. I find the mix inspiring mm. so do you, ha- do you have, have time for much of your own writing? I haven't recently because I've been doing all these charity anthologies I've, I've just finished putting together a flash fiction anthology with oh yeah in it and you know that was a massive project and we, I've just finished the editing of that so now that's out of the way I have actually started doing a bit more writing and I've recently had a, a story accepted, accepted by Wolfsinger Publications which is a, an American publisher another one by Common Press uh, which is quite a prestigious UK publisher and I've just finished writing one for, for another um, publication with Simon Burden which I don't know whether it's going to be accepted yet, but it, I, you know, I am I am finding time to write at the moment. That's a fact to change because obviously when the competition comes yes. up close to deadline, all my time gets sunk into that. But uh, yeah. before it goes completely bonkers, I'm I'm making the most of it and trying to write a couple mm. of stories. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's good for the good for the mental health, I think, for the writing and creating. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The 81 Words anthology, which has got all these different flash fiction pieces in it, has been put out by Victorina Press, which is my publisher. They, um, they're an independent publisher in the UK. And they published mm. my first short story collection, which is called Alternative Afterlives. All right. It's got lots of humorous short stories in it, as you'd expect. Mm. Both. And yeah, and they've been good enough to help out, help out with the 81 Words thing. So it could, I tried to make it a world record attempt, and Guinness mm. turned it down because creative writing is subjective, and they couldn't, they didn't feel that they could qualify it as a world record, which was a bit of a shame. But I went, yeah. <clears throat> I've done it as an unofficial world record, and mm. by having the publisher involved, it added a bit of credibility to the project, so that you know it's not just some Blake self publishing it. It's uh, right. It's yeah, I, I think that's that's gonna mm. really help it. And what's nice about that is we've got people from every continent in the world, apart from Antarctica, I think, represented yeah. in the park. There are so many different, you know, types of author in there. It's a lovely mix of voices. Mm. Over, right. you, you weren't tempted to try and get someone from the Ant- British Antarctica survey to take part in something. Just, I should have. Shouldn't I? The site. You should have done. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know, I can't bear to, to mess with it anymore. It's, it's taken seven, <laughs> seven years, I think, to put it all together and actually finish the book. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's, it's time to pull the line under it. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone wants to buy a copy of any of the books, that, that's on your website as well, is it? Yeah, I've find, find links. Yeah. I'll, I'll, they'll, they'll be linked to the website on, on, on my website with the, with the podcast if anyone wants to find it. Brilliant. Cool. Is there anything else I should that we should know about you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a leading question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's not land you any trouble. No. 
I don't think so, really. I, I like to write, I like to play drums, I like motorbikes, hence the sound of that competition thing. Yeah. I, I guess the only other thing to mention is that my website's got loads and loads of free resources on it that are all aimed at writers of all sorts of different levels. Um, yeah, I had a look, and it's, it's, there's, there's loads of stuff on there. It's well worth a look. Yeah, it's kind of ballooned over the years, and, and now it's massive. Too. <laughs> yeah, these things do, yeah. But, you know, I've, I've got quite a lot of guest posts on there now, so there's some really interesting stuff from other writers, which, you mm. know, I, I find interesting myself, given advice based on their experiences. So it's worth looking through if you are. Uh, a bit lost it can inspire you i think cool yeah right well thank you very much for coming along and uh talking about mort and uh good luck with all your future ventures and if anyone out there wants to enter um to hull and back get your skates on because at the end of the month is the closing date yes absolutely <laughs> by the time this airs you'll have three weeks i believe to get yeah that's true <laughs> Well, good luck then. Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. Okay, no problem. So, this place is intended to be free from adverts, as if anyone paid an advertiser anyway. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books, or in Chris's case, buying his books and music, as well as entering his competition. Chris is on Twitter as Chris Fielden, and his website is at ChristopherFielden.com. I'm on Twitter as John Pinnock, and my website is at JonathanPinnock.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to award-winning writer and podcaster Polly Hall about David Sedaris's Me Talk Pretty One Day, as well as her own work carving out a new genre of Somerset Gothic. See you then. the dust a few things to add first of all apologies for the sound quality in this episode which made it appear as if chris was speaking to me from somewhere close to the bottom of the atacama trench i guess this was inevitable given that i'm pretty sure he actually lives nearer to me than any of my other guests so far secondly special thanks to chris for providing the excellent incidental music for this episode which are all extracts from the forthcoming airbus album you which comes out on spyro records in september it is very, very good indeed, and I hope you're all going to go out and buy it. Finally, for those of you who are wondering about what happened to the horse, Jester, a.k.a. Airbus the Rock Phenomenon, staggered off to the great glue factory in the sky a few years ago. Rest in peace, old chap. <laughs>